where sustainability within fashion is headed, we believe firmly or strongly is end-of-life management and responsibility for material and end-of-life. Welcome back to Responsible Impact, the show where we discuss all things sustainability and e-commerce. The impetus of this show, this podcast, is the recognition that as players in e-commerce, Magic Links is standing in the same room as many other actors with considerable collective impact on the environment. The way we all consider sustainability in the aggregate, and then the way we specifically own our respective movements towards sustainability is crucial to actually moving the needle towards good. I say this because the conversation with Chloe Songer and Stuart Alam, the founders of shoe company Thousandfell, was noteworthy in that it made eye contact with just about all the interwoven facets of sustainability. They, too, are looking all the way around the room, as it were. So this is a special two-part conversation, and I'm excited to present it to you. This is part one of our conversation with Thousandfell. So I'm Chloe Songer. And I'm Stuart Allen. And uh, we're the co-founders of Thousandfell. We we met seven years ago in China. Um, I was living in Wuhan. Stuart was living in Shanghai. Previous to that, he was living in Thailand. We did the same post-grad program in, in Asia. Um, and then lived and worked in Shanghai at the same time. And um, both of us kind of really early in our career got, to, got the chance to spend time in and out of factories and closely means of sourcing and production and kind of started our career, you know, near consumer and near consumer brands. Um, yes. Yeah, spent a lot of time uh, in between <clears throat> Shanghai, Dongguan and Fujian working in, uh, in footwear factories and setting up uh, sample rooms and sourcing and full scale production. Um, and so, so leveraged a lot of that when launching thousand fell um, and, and Chloe kind of framed up something pretty nicely, but early in our careers, we saw how the manufacturing process was run. Um, and, and so when thinking about the changes that we wanted to make within larger retail, mm-hmm. having that background and that understanding has allowed us to really tackle this mission of ending textile waste and doing it through circular retail and, and closed loop systems, um, so that's that's us. That's kind of our genesis. Yeah. That's where we met, and that's that's how we started the company. Uh, you mentioned being in Wuhan. So was all of this with COVID? Was that particularly? I mean, you must know people who were there. Yeah, you know. it was. Um, abs- this year has been absolutely insane. Um, around <clears throat> Christmas time. So yes, I, I spent a year in Wuhan. I actually worked at the Wuhan University of Technology, which has been embroiled in some of the drama um, with the COVID virus and research. Um, and it's an amazing city and Stuart and I both, you know, we spent three years in China and we love, you know, Chinese people and Chinese culture. And it, it, it was interesting. I hadn't, I had left five years ago, maybe China and nobody ever asked me about Wuhan until this year. I'm like the local expert. <laughs> um, but I have really, really, and here great. I am doing it too. I I'm know, sorry. but you know, and I, 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 I absolutely loved my time in Wuhan and I had really close friends, one in particular who I would consider a life best friend um, because Wuhan was not an international city at all while I was there. And I had a tight knit group of international or expat friends, but I really was pushed to join a local community and to make, you know, awesome local friends. And it helped that I spoke the language. Um, but it, it's an incredible city with an incredible group of people. And it was been really tough to see what happened to them earlier this year. 
So I saw that you guys had worked with GAP's rotational management program. Were there any sort of takeaways from that that informed what you're doing now? Or was it mostly your experiences in China? Or was that all like, talk to me about that. Totally. So I actually did the management program, but Stuart and I, we to back up, we are now dating. And um, we were together during that time. And we were also working together on a couple of side projects during that. But maybe we should just dive in and tell you the full story. Let's do it. Yes. So we, so we met, so I was living in Wuhan. We both did Princeton in Asia. Stu was in Northern Thailand. We both wanted to figure out retail, consumer, and extend time in Asia. And so we both moved to Shanghai. Um, and in Shanghai, I was working for Alexander Wang Group on an awesome new brand called Arate Studio. And it was a small team launching a made in China, designed in China luxury label, which was fantastic because I got to be really early on in a kind of luxury fashion business and see everything from sourcing, supply chain, you know, sales, marketing, fashion week, um, and really got to be on the biz dev side of a retail business um, and, and, and realize that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I'll kind of let Stu come in and fill in his part. But what I, what I did from there is I had a mentor tell me, well, if you, I was super interested in sustainability based on my background growing up in California and um, environmental activism, environmental policy that I'd been involved with before. And um, a mentor of mine told me, if you want to change the fashion industry, you need to learn how to move units and you need to learn how to build a big business mm. that can affect more people. And I never imagined that – I was so interested in high fashion. I never imagined that I would go to Gap – but Gap has a fantastic management training program. Um, it, you know, if you're trying to, to enter the retail industry, I would l- highly recommend looking for a training program at a big business because you'll learn best practices and you'll understand really on a macro level how to think businesses across um, markets and and across kind of you know skill sets and and business functions within within the corporation. Um, and while I was there, Gap had launched. Um, in San Francisco, Gap had launched Aero. This is about 2015, 2016, which was their innovation lab. And they poached the head of innovation from Patagonia. And what he was awesome. And they were doing token investments into awesome biofabrication and cellular agriculture companies. So Bolt Threads, Modern Meadow. And it blew my mind, like lab-grown leather, lab-grown spider silk, like what the future of retail and fashion could be if you didn't have to rely on cotton fields that use so much water or on, you know, animals for leather and tanneries. Um, and so at that time, and Stuart will jump in in a minute and tell you his background, but he had access to supply chain sourcing and, and R&D facilities for footwear. And we started just looking into new materials and testing different things. And as a passion project, we joined Materio in Paris, Material Connection in New York, and started just testing mushroom leather, apple leather, cork, like trying to make sandals and shoes and sneakers out of so many different types of things. And so this started with a kind of an obsession or a fascination with, um, you know, new material innovation. And as we got deeper into this journey, we ended up meeting an advisor of ours um, from the recycling space and, and starting to think full picture holistically about the progression of sustainability within fashion and where sustainability within fashion is headed. We believe firmly or strongly is end-of-life management and responsibility for material and end-of-life so we've kind of flipped with thousand fell. Our our mission is now how to end textile waste, um, and really using that material innovation to design for recycling. But now fill in how you have to bring the big big expertise. Yeah, I don't know about that, but uh, so with as Chloe framed up, spent time in Asia, was in Shanghai, and started actually my career um, helping international consumer brands enter into the China market, um, and so worked really closely with. Um, brands like SK2 and Skull Candy, 
um, as they as they looked at at the China consumer and, and how they were shopping differently. And it was mobile first, which was like so revolutionary, you know, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of come full circle here too. But you know, seeing all of those best practices and really being interested in consumer, and then at the same time, there's a really at least when I was there, a really robust entrepreneurship scene in in uh, Shanghai, and so got really involved with a couple of guys that were launching um, footwear direct to consumer, uh, and spent a lot of time down in Dongguan as they were manufacturing product um, and helped them launch it in in the U.S. And we sold predominantly wholesale, but into uh, retailers like Nordstrom's and Saks and Eastain and Stitch Fix, and learned a ton about the footwear space and the footwear consumer and these and this price point product category that people were buying, you know, two to four times a year and just kind of burning through these 10,000 step a day, basic, basic sneakers. Um, and so really interested in, in, in changing the way that people were consuming and putting product on a closed loop. And so, you know, it's really tough to donate footwear. It's really tough to resell footwear. And there's some, there's some great companies that are in the high end resale market, um, you know, the stock X and goat and, and, and stadium goods, um, but but for your everyday shoe, it's really hard. And so the solution yeah. that we found was putting that on the loop and making sure that we could recapture product, that we could um, that we could break it down into its component parts and do fiber recapture and do like for like recycling, so that where we're putting fabric and and fibers back into new shoes. Um, and so we built that full system here, and, and it really was informed again by um, consumer behavior in early days in the footwear space and how footwear was manufactured. And then as Chloe mentioned. Um, the early partnerships that we've had with some really great mentors of ours uh, in the waste management and recycling space. I mean, you guys are probably the only footwear company that I've seen, and granted, I'm not an expert, but that I've seen who discuss breaking it down into its component parts. Everybody yeah. else, like, it becomes just sort of a wholesale, like, the sum is greater than its parts things, and then, like, it's like, oh, nope, that's one complete shoe. You can't take it apart, and nothing about that can be reused. I mm-hmm. think that's really revolutionary. I mean, are you are you aware of anybody else who's approaching it from that mindset? I think it's definitely something that the industry at large is moving towards. And you're seeing it with Ella MacArthur Foundation and with the UN Sustainability Goals and the and the you know the global fashion pact that that everyone signed in France last year. People circularity is a big tenant of of the industry's solution towards sustainability go forward. I just think those time horizons are, you know, ten to fifteen years out. And and you're seeing larger brands like Adidas launch pilot programs and you're seeing Nike have doing early you know, take back programs for their regrind, but it, it's not at scale. It's not an entire industry shifts yet. And I think it's hard with, with larger supply chains to do that. Um, and then I think, I think where we're headed and, and kind of the next challenge for us is that take back or recapture is one thing and being able to send a shoe back is one thing, but actually being able to recycle it and showing customers what that product journey looks like is, is kind of a new frontier. And so really are leading in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the difference—the difference we see—and it's a big um, thing. Focus for us over the next year will be like consumer education and customer education and market development on what does recyclable mean. Mm-hmm. And because there's many different versions, you can call something recyclable technically, but then take it back and do what a lot of businesses do, where you burn the product and waste of energy. Yep. Or you can take it back and you can maybe downcycle part of it, like just take the rubber and downcycle it into like tracks or construction projects mm-hmm. um, and then burn the pieces that you can't pull apart or recycle or that were, you know, compromised by adhesives. 
or cement because footwear is really complex. You're, you're generally you're taking a hundred odd parts. I mm -hmm. actually forget the number and the average number of parts in a shoe, but you're taking a hundred odd parts and you're cementing or gluing or heat fusing them together, melting them together. And the problem with recycling is you need clean material feeds, um, and you need tonnage waste in those feeds to hit profitability at scale. And so it, it's really a design thinking exercise. How do you redesign products to be able to easily pull apart, to have as few material feeds as possible, to have adhesives and um, attachment points that don't impact recycling? And, and, and then how do you take back that, that product at end of life and, and incentivize both consumers and brands to try to collect back that product? And then how do you put that old fiber back in a new product? So it's a whole new system that we're piloting and looking at building. I think we have like a fantastic Gen 1 shoe, and we're the only shoe like this that we know of on the market or in development. Being able to break things down on the back end of influences where you source them from on the f in the first place, you've got some really great things like um, palm leaves, you've got like aloe, different rubbers. I saw you have quartz involved in your shoes. Can you speak to sourcing for your components? Yeah, so it's, the, it's a, a couple different stakeholders, and we have a couple different factors that we we consider when sourcing. And so the number one, first and foremost, is can it be recycled? And and oftentimes what that means is that is it is are there no blends? So it's really hard from a mechanical recycling point of view to blend or to recycle blended like cotton poly or you know like spandex and nylon. Like it gets really tough to pull those individual fiber feeds apart. So we've we've focused on making sure that we're sourcing things that are like 100% RPET, you know, rubber, 100% cotton. Um, uh, and, and making sure that we can actually recapture that and then, and then mechanically recycle it. The other considerations is that we really want to make sure that we're reducing um, any and all like virgin materials that are going into it. So if we're using RPET, um, make RPET, making sure that it's recycled. If we're using cotton, making sure that it's organic, and if not organic, then making sure that it's it's recycled as well. Um, making sure that the the component parts that we're using, we're swapping out virgin. Plastics for for industrial, you know, food waste that we can we can compost, um, which is huge for us. And so, there's certain things too that that impede recycling. And there's a reason why we do aloe vera as opposed to like metals like silver and copper that a lot of people use for antimicrobial or for um, uh, anti smell. And it's like really hard to to recycle those those metals. And so we've done natural coatings on there that doesn't impede recycling, but at the same time also keeps our carbon footprint low on the beginning of the supply chain. Right, and so um, being really focused on renewables, being really focused on um, on recyclables, and then and then making sure that those feeds can be circular. So, what's really great about RPET for footwear in particular is that we a we don't recommend that you wash our shoes. Don't do that. Microplastic pollution is a real thing, and yes, um, and, and so it sheds, which is not good. But yes. you don't you don't don't wash ours. But what's nice is that you can turn RPET like 20 plus times. And so we can recapture that, we can grind it back down, we can get RPT fibers, and then we can reintegrate that back into our supply chain at the yarn level and in the textile level, which is so valuable. And the same thing with rubber, we can recycle it and recapture it into crumb rubber and, and put it back in. And so we've been we've been really thoughtful, A, to target these, these material feeds that are already kind of at scale from a recycling point of view. It's the rubber, and you can imagine the car tire industry recycling rubber, PET with, with plastic bottles, um, cotton with with early uh, with early fiber and, and clothing recycling and so being able to work into these feeds is really important um, and then making sure that that we're we're sourcing the best and so 
one like our rubber supplier is unbelievable. It's a company called Ulex. Um, they do all of the the rubber supplying for Patagonia's wetsuits, and wetsuits are notoriously um, harmful uh, and and in, have heavy environmental impact. And, and the Ulex team is unbelievable. Um, they're like carbon neutral, um, and the rubber is is just incredible. So be making sure that we're working with some of the best in class best in class partners. Um, the thing that that we noticed was that you know. A lot of these, a lot of these mills are are really interested in innovating and 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 changing. And so there's been a lot of early push to do uh, to do R and D and material testing and development into recyclable and in, and into sustainable materials. I mean, it's what the industry is demanding. And so we've been able to find some really great partners that have started early on doing that research. The tricky thing is that, and Chloe alluded to this, is that footwear is such a technical process. And it's really, it's really intensive. So you're like stretching things over lasts and you're stitching them and there's a lot of tension and then you're putting them in and out of heating and cooling chambers. And so like the material has to be really durable. And so it's, it, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother R and D process that we had to go through in order to source these. But, um, the sourcing part of the business is really tough. And I think what was nice is we were able to leverage our industry experience, um, in order to achieve that. Yeah, you know, this actually broaches a question. So of all of the things that you could have started out making with these wonderful values in mind, it sounds like footwear was maybe one of the more difficult ones to achieve. Yes. Why footwear versus something else? And then also, you know, why the sneaker versus other kinds of shoes? Yeah, I can jump in and talk about why footwear. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. So footwear is by far the hardest product category in retail to manufacture. And then it is translates equally as difficult to, to recycle. And I think what's so interesting about it is that we wanted to come in and make real change. Um, and, and our, the challenge was how do we do, uh, you know, the most difficult product category. And at the same time, how do we do a product category that probably has the most impact, um, on, on waste. And so, you know, 17% of textile, uh, or sorry, of landfill waste is textile waste, Footwear is disproportionately wasteful. It accounts for a tenth of production, but a quarter of all waste. And oh. so it's a big, it's a big problem in the industry. Okay. Um, That's nauseating. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's so hard. It's again, it's so hard to recycle and it's so hard mm-hmm. to donate it. And so it goes straight to landfill. And <clears> and the other thing there too is that it's it's a ten thousand step a day shoe now. I mean, this is what everybody's wearing. Um, they're wearing it to work, they're wearing it on the weekends, and we're seeing people buy upwards of eight to 10 pairs of shoes a year in, in the U S and really the, the sneaker category. And, and we liken it to an intimate, you know, like, like yeah. lingerie um, that people are kind of burning through and there's no good, no good aftermarket. And so it's really the perfect product to put on a, on a closed loop. And I can let Chloe kind of jump in and talk a little no, bit more. Yeah, about no, it, but... I was just going to say you're, when you hear the numbers, it's staggering, but at 2.4 billion pairs of shoes are sold in the U S every year. So that's eight per American. And in this product category, the first user is the last user. It's really hard in textiles in general to actually donate. You can't donate forever. So yeah. it's one of the reasons that there are you know textile wastelands in developing countries. And at, at some point, we have to be accountable for our own waste, and we can't continue to ship it off. Um, and footwear is uniquely hard to donate because... Um, and that's why Stuart just mentioned we liken it to intimates or lingerie, but if a shoe smells even slightly on the inside, it's a sign of bacteria, or if the back heel count is, back heel is worn down, it um, will affect the second user's gait. So there are a lot of things that have to be right in a shoe in order for it to legally be able to be donated. 
Um, and generally, particularly with sneakers, like these are daily wear products that you're tearing through that are brown, smelly, whatever. Um, and and the average consumer is buying two to three pairs a year. And, and they really have an eight to 12 month lifespan if you're wearing them frequently. So that's why so many more shoes are going to landfill versus, you know, coats or handbags or things that you can make last and keep in your closet for five to 10 years. Sneakers are, are a fairly consistent repeat purchase and, and the perfect product category to start to tackle. And the other kind of problem there is from the environmental side. You know, it's really easy to switch your t-shirt supply chain line from like a cotton poly blend to organic cotton or U.S.-based US cotton. That's a really easy supply chain swap. But the, when you look at the main component parts in footwear, it's rubber, plastic, and leather. And those are three of the worst offenders when you look at kind of the HIG material index. Leather is the single worst material in the fashion industry <clears throat> from a carbon, energy, and water point of view, and land use point of view. And that's everything from the land use used to raise the cattle to the deforestation kind of linkage, as well as the tanning process. And I think Stuart mentioned this, but the chemicals that go into tanning, chromium, is a well-known carcinogen. And it's, you know, the tanning process is a high impact both on the workers and the land around the tannery. Mm -hmm. um, and then post-life or afterlife, you might think leather is natural or biodegradable because it's, you know, skin. But once you've tanned something, you've mummified it. Um, and leather can take 80 to 100 years to break down in a landfill. Um, and so, and then, and then rubber and plastic can take up to a thousand years to break down. And they contribute to, again, then heavy metal runoff and microplastic pollution from lecate or, or landfill runoff. So there's a lot of problems with the component parts and footwear as well. So if you're going to try to make an, a, you know, a big difference, you might as well start with the most wasteful product category. And then it'll be easy to like tack on hoodies, t-shirts, socks, whatever you want later. But um, you know, this is, you know, if, we, if we're actually interested in making a difference and, and not interested in having an easy business model out the gate, this was, you know, where we needed to start. I have profound respect for you both for basically saying that you wanted this specific thing because it was the hardest. <laughs> um, I can, I'm talking to you though, of course, after you're off and running, I mean, your shoes are very successful. Everybody seems to love them. Your site is beautiful. You have your supply chains up and running. I have to imagine that when you were staring down the barrel of making a choice or picking an easier route at the beginning and perhaps looking for backing, that, that was maybe a little bit of a different different feeling. Uh, was that a yeah. difficult process for you? Would, are you comfortable speaking to that? Yeah. No, I mean, every single time we talk to a prospective partner or investor, we get asked why sneakers. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I thought I was being original-ish. <laughs> no, and especially even like, um, it's a big, well, especially because the sustainable footwear space has ballooned in the past two years and it's fairly mm -hmm. crowded and there's so many brands claiming to be sustainable footwear. <laughs> and especially when you think about it from kind of an investment point of view, people want to invest in like the leader or a market leader or a white space. And, you know, a, there's this argument that like the footwear will never be a winner takes all market. It's a no. huge, massive global industry and it's not going anywhere. We're always going to need shoes. Um, there might be different trends or the style trends that come and go, but like footwear in general will be there. And we've only barely scratched the surface of the percentage of footwear made globally that is actually truly sustainable. And then that's on top of that recyclable. So there can be many winners in, in sustainable recyclable footwear in our mind. Um, but then it was, it was also much easier because we had from working, especially with Stuart's background in footwear, we had already 
really deep connections within footwear supply chain and sourcing. And our biggest advantage early on was, you know, we were, you know, fairly young in our career, but we were able to bring together an awesome team of industry ex- experts from Keds and Kohan and Nike um, to help us build this. And so, you know, I, I, and I don't think it would have been as compelling in any other product category. You want to answer? Do you want to add to that? Yeah, do you want to add? Yeah, I love our team. Um, <laughs> I can't say enough good things about it. And I think it's so interesting. And, and anybody listening that's like an old shoe dog will, I think, will recognize this and laugh at this. But like, it's kind of this really tight knit community. It's like everybody knows everybody in footwear. There's only a couple big players. Um, everybody's either worked at like Nike, Adidas, Colhan, and New Balance and like, Converse and Keds. And so it's just really interesting to like tap into that. And, and to be honest with you, I know Chloe mentioned in the past couple of years, people have, people have been talking about sustainable footwear and that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really thankful for that. But um, man, it is an industry that has not really undergone a lot of innovation in the past, like a hundred years, right? Like everybody still has their Chuck Taylor all-stars that look the same as it did in 1920. Like that's crazy. Um, uh, and so And so it's really ripe for disruption. And and what's so interesting when we went out to talk about our vision, it's like the people that work in the space and know the space intimately and very well loved the idea because it's something that I think everybody had been whispering and talking about for a long time on how to do it. Um, And it really is the the new frontier for for production and for the way that like companies and brands should be operating. And so um, I think that was a that was a comforting and a big and important win for us early on was getting people that were experts bought into the vision and the mission. Um, and it's, you, it's really funny that you mentioned like how daunting it was early on. I think I'm going to say two things. One, I think if I knew everything that I knew today, when I first started, I would have been way more intimidated. So um, like <laughs> ignorance, ignorance is a little, is a little blissful, so, yeah. you know, which is good. Right. So we were like kind of blindly optimistic. Like, oh yeah, we can totally do this and didn't even understand half of the things that we'd have to do. So well, I mean, it worked out. So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to credit a little bit of like dumb luck there. I, I also think what's nice and, and what we've started doing as founders is is hindsighting and, and doing it on a quarterly basis and, and starting a little bit more frequently to do it on a monthly basis to really see how the business has grown and, and the milestones that we've hit. And I think it gets really easy for any founder in any company and any startup at all to, to like lose sight of the progress that you've made. And it's like, you're so busy doing a million and one different things and putting out a ton of small fires and like operating the business and like the, the daily operational tasks that it requires that you lose sight of like a lot of the progress that you've made. And so we've really started celebrating those milestones. Um, and it's been nice to look back and go like, man, like we, this goal a year ago was to kind of be where we are right now. And it's like amazing that we've, we've done that and like, look how far we've come. Um, you know, but in the middle of like a hectic Thursday, if you're like, what, what sort of progress have you made? I don't, I don't know. I might be, I might be like less, not optimistic, but like less clear minded about it. So it's good to have that that point of reflection. Um, I think you saying that is a really fascinating, almost like a philosophical difference. And it, it's formed a little hypothesis in my brain. So I'm going to spit it out and you can tell me if I'm on the right track. I think a lot of people, particularly in a very um, competitive field, whatever it might be, fashion, footwear or not, uh, in order to feel like you're going to survive, 
that competitive nature means that you're trying to look as far into the future as you can. And what you're describing is, is a nice balance where you have some retrospectives. And I think that that might inform the sense of mission and really of, of verified place, right? Like you, you're very self-reflective as a company. And so your product is self-reflective and it knows where it wants to stand in history. Cause you're also looking at history mm-hmm. is that am I misconstruing or like taking it out of context? No, I think that's beautiful. I think there's a, um, we spent, I I would say a couple of things. One, I think something we know about ourselves and especially know now in light of COVID and what we've been through the past four months is that we as founders, a superpower of ours is definitely that we're thoughtful. Um, I think we, we have put a lot of ourselves into this business and especially because we spent so many years building it on our own before even taking outside investment, we have a tendency to plan and think and, and really want to share. And, and so I think I, I would definitely say you're, you're correct and right on that that is feedback that we get really often. Um, but then the retrospective piece, looking back versus looking forward, it's so interesting you call that out because there is this push and pull, and I think that's actually something between Stuart and I. We talk, we we spend a lot of time thinking about even who we are as founders and the difference between the two of us. And I have to hindsight, but it come. But my background was also in a retail business um, where we spent the majority of my job was hindsighting, hindsighting sales, quarterly, monthly, weekly, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, and you know looking and really really tied to year over year growth and knowing what happened and where we needed to go. And so I'm, you know, really focused on where have we been, what are we trying to do? And I'll let you explain your take. Yeah. Uh, I am doing a better job looking back, <laughs> but I shoot from the hip so much and just try to get shit done. Um, and and it, well, it, it's, and and it's it can be super it's it listen it's I have I have no but I've, it's, it's both get, are important yeah I was gonna say I've I've <laughs> come to realize and done a better job realizing when we need to do that yeah and pushing us to do that and then when we need to like maybe collect our thoughts a little bit um, and gather <laughs> our troops and, there's and, this there's this need to like build 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 go 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 yeah um and you 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 can't do too much of one or the other. Like yeah. you just can't. Like we can't be so tied to the past that we're afraid to act and that our hand like we we're handcuffing ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we can't just like keep pushing without thinking about and like coming back to the basics, mission, vision, why. Mm-hmm. Like why are we doing this? Like let's reset. Like we you know, and, and especially when you're t- tied to things that move so quickly, like social content is going out every day and we're testing TikTok or this, that and the other and like things are now moving so much faster than I think we could have ever imagined. Um, and it's, it's really, really important that we continue to come back and like zoom out and look at both hindsighting and then future plans. The other thing I'll say too, is if you're, if you hindsight regularly, what I'm realizing is it allows you to act quicker because yep. you have yeah. more confidence in what you're doing. And yep. so you know, yeah. like a really good example of this was the social justice movement when it hit and how we responded to it. And I think I look back at the business and I think I'm the most proud of that in the past year. Really? Um, and and we we had it took us a much longer to figure out how we were going to respond to COVID, you know, by several days. But we really th- had to think about what it meant to be a business, and and we knew that, like, and kind of go, starting with COVID, we knew early on 
where we stood when it came to sustainability and to like environmental activism and environmental justice. Like we had that ironed out and hammered out. And if anybody was like, what do you think about this mission? What do you think about, you know, these, these initiatives around environmentalism? We, we could, we totally knew where the brand stood and how to speak to it. What we didn't know to how to talk about was like virology and epidemiology and global pandemics and yeah, how that is people. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't know how to really talk about yeah. mass, like, social injustice and racial injustice and like what that meant to the brand and how the brand spoke about it. And I think we were able to really, when COVID hit, we were able to think about what sort of business we wanted to build and how mission driven we wanted to be around this idea of building a better tomorrow and treating people like people. Um, And that being really central to Chloe and I and to the business that we were building and the teams that we were working with, that when the social justice movement was really just starting we were able to really quickly think about and know how we wanted to respond and and understand, I think, really quickly how social justice is inextricably linked to to environmental justice and, yes. and vice versa. And, and, and to bring a community around that and amplify voices that were experts in that where, where we might not have been experts, um, but use kind of our platform to talk about that. And so I think I think all of that came from being really clear on the community that we were building, the mission that we had around building a better tomorrow, um, and having hindsighted that and being thoughtful about that as COVID spiked, and then being able to see kind of similarities with with that need to really be authentic and 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 and, and respond to the social justice movement. I mean, we we had something similar within Magic Links. Like we were like, mm-hmm. yeah, no question, this is the right thing to be doing, and this is you know it's unacceptable that people are treated this way. But you bring up a good point that there are a lot of companies that really stumbled. I mean, I watched a number of of organizations that I know. Um, some of them just outright dropped the ball, and it was a little bit like, how can you? How did? How, why did you need to take time to think about this? But you, you tying that together to like you know, being able to act quickly when the time comes because you're prepared. I think that's an excellent, excellent point. We put out a, a blog post as a company when all of this was going on saying uh, civil rights or human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a human rights professor who mentioned, you know, it's so strange to me that they call it civil rights in the United States because everywhere else in the world, it's human rights. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. And so it's almost like, and I don't know if it was intentional and a lot of racism in America, of course, was very uh, calculating and cruel. But to call it civil rights makes it feel like it's something that the government needs to grant you and that you Mm -hmm. maybe codify on a piece of paper. It doesn't feel like it's something endemic to you by virtue of being a human being. Yeah, exactly. That's really well said. And it changes it because it sounds like people are asking for more of their government instead of what their government is overdue and, you know, remiss for not already having provided and secured. Now, whenever I can and people talk about civil rights, I'm like, oh, it's, it's human rights. It's a human rights Totally. I think it's really well said. Yeah, and in the link there, even, and this is what Stuart was trying to express, that was when we sat with our team, and our team is very young and very diverse, um, to talk about how we were going to respond, and, and also just, like, how is this affecting our team? Yeah. It's, it's so linked because climate change and environmental justice isn't a political issue, in my opinion. It's a, it's a human rights issue. Yes. Um, and and so is social justice and, and equality and the climate change and climate problems and even landfill and landfill waste and landfill runoff and textile waste disproportionately affect lower income communities and affect your quality of life and your health. And that's a human rights issue. Yeah. Um, and so it's just a really natural fit for us and for our community to lean into and to talk about and something we're going to continue to work 
into kind of our brand DNA um, and as a core mission for us. Be sure you're subscribed to catch part two of this conversation. There's a whole bunch that Chloe and Stuart discussed, which I'm thrilled to share with you. Maybe take advantage of some time today to look back so you can be clear-eyed when you look forward to what matters in your life. Credits this episode go to Hazel Shin, Brian Nickerson, Ed Gross, the funniest unpaid soda spokesman around, Jessica Solash, and naturally, Chloe and Stuart. Check out their shoes at thousandfell.com and keep them in mind when deciding who to support when voting with your dollars. We're also taking guesses on what the hell the meow at the end of this show is about. Drop yours at responsibleimpact at magiclinks.com. All right, gang, I'm Natalie, and I'm out. Till next time.